0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Ted Dintersmith is not your normal Silicon Valley venture capitalist trying to save the world through technology. He is much more complex. After producing the film Most Likely to Succeed, which premiered at Sundance in 2015, Ted embarked on a trip across America. For nine months, he visited school after school, meeting teachers in ordinary settings, doing
1: extraordinary things. Picking things from every state in the country to really reinforce the point that it's not just in, you know, actually I found Palo Alto, I found California to be not that innovative, you know, but you can find these great things in places that many people don't think of as innovative. You know, the North Dakotas of the country. The Kentuckys, you know, these they're these really great people fighting in every single day to advance learning for their kids.
0: Today, Ted joins me to talk about his new book, What School Could Be, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers
1: Across America. I'm just meeting all these people. I'm going to all these schools. And you know, boy, I just, was, I just learned so much. I talked to so many interesting people. I saw so many interesting things. And so I thought, it's like the classic thing, I thought I had something to say to America and instead I they had a lot more to say to me and, and that ultimately led to, to my writing a book about it.
0: Ted is currently a partner emeritus with Charles River Ventures. He was ranked by Business 2.0 as the top performing venture capitalist in the U.S. for the years 1995 to 1999. In 2012, he was appointed by President Obama to represent the U.S. at the United Nations General Assembly, where he focused on education. Ted Dintersmith, welcome to Fresh Ed. Great to be here. So in the fall of 2015, you literally went back to school for an entire school year. Not just one school that you went to, but but hundreds of schools across every state in, in America. What on earth decided made you decide to to embark on this journey, to go back
1: to school? A a lot of people ask me that, particularly my friends and my family members, because it is a little ambitious to go to all 50 states in a nine-month period. And the trip really didn't take entirely the shape I expected. So initially, I felt this, and I still feel, I mean, every single day I feel the urgency of anticipating what the future is going to be like for our young adults and having schools adapt and modify and transform themselves to keep pace, which I think very few schools actually are doing for good reasons because the innovation economy is sprinting ahead. So I sort of said, why don't I go on this really ambitious trip to make sure people understand there's urgency here? But as I traveled, and I took it very seriously, I heard, the, believe it or not, the advanced campaign planning team who, who did all the work for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign So it's like every day from morning, you know, breakfast till the end of the day, which at the end of the day was typically 10, 1030 at night with a community forum. I'm just meeting all these people. I'm going to all these schools. And, you know, boy, I just was, I just learned so much. I talked to so many interesting people. I saw so many interesting things. And so, so I thought it's like the classic thing. I thought I had something to say to America. And instead I, they had a lot more to say to me and then, That ultimately led to to my writing a book about it.
0: So, okay, so you went across the country speaking with thousands of people. What did you hear? What were people telling you about the state of education in America?
1: Well, there's just a million different perspectives on this. And you realize how incredibly complicated and intertwined our education system is with schools subject to all sorts of external forces, you know, state legislators, school boards, college admissions, parents, real estate agents, on and on. There are a million different things that come into play when it comes to the decisions that get made in schools. I'd say if there's one major takeaway it's that in education, we largely have a system that is run by non-educators telling educators what to do. It's one of those few things in American society uh, where that takes place. And, and you find that a lot of the people who project their views onto school really are thinking about the school they went to 30, 40, 50 years ago. And they're not able to step outside of that kind of dated perspective on what's to be accomplished in schools, or maybe more importantly, how to assess whether a school's doing a great job. And so you realize that, and and this is similar, I think, to one of my perspectives from business is I generally learned a lot more about a business when I talked to the people actually kind of in the trenches doing the work than when I talked to senior managers. And I worked with some very good senior managers. But if you really want to understand what's going on, talk to the people doing the work. And that's what I was able to do. And I think it's unusual because I recognize I'm humble about the fact that I'm a person with a business background interested in education. And when I say that, as soon as you say those words, I have a business background now interested in education. A lot of people in the classroom, you know, like the blood drains from their face because they've seen that movie before and it's not a particularly good movie. But I found when I really put the time in to listen to them, to hear about what they were experiencing, and in particular to see some of the amazing things they were doing, it was really energizing.
0: So why is there a disconnect between the people running education and the people basically doing education, right? Like, why are the upper-level
1: managers so disconnected? Well, in my book, I talk about this. And, it, and the common denominator, and it's not 100%, nothing ever in life is 100%. But a lot of the people that make their way to the top of these bureaucracies, you know, states, federal You know, two things. One is they generally have very strong academic credentials. So school work for them? They expect it should work for everybody. They have no beef with the fact that they, you know, got into uh, an elite undergraduate school and then went on to get their PhD from Harvard in the Graduate School of Education. So they are fundamentally aligned with the process of school. And they're also people that were able to work their way through and up to the top of large bureaucracies. So they know how to work a system, they have a mindset around policies and procedures and metrics and they do what I think they're inclined to do, what they've succeeded with in their own personal life and then they take that and apply it to schools across America. The problem is a lot of kids have incredible gifts that go beyond the realm of the academic and when you start to standardize education so you can measure the progress of kids, I think you largely destroy the learning. So on this trip of yours,
0: was there anything in particular that you changed your mind about after meeting all of the educators and students and parents and principals? Like, what what was the biggest thing that that you you came away saying, wow, I I really think differently about that now?
1: Well, I, I clearly shifted, not dramatically, But whatever respect I had for teachers going into the trip, which was a reasonably high level of respect, only got higher. I mean, the number of teachers that would share with me, you know, in tears, you know, a variant along these lines, which is every morning I have to decide, do I do what's best for my students or what the state tells me to do? There are a lot of teachers in that category. Uh, You know, an incredibly moving day for me is going to the National Teachers Hall of Fame in Emporia, Kansas. And you see this knoll where they have these plaques and and monuments, you know, not massive monuments, but commemorating the teachers who gave their lives in classrooms for their students. And, And it just hit me, you know, like, we trust these teachers with the lives of our kids, but we don't trust them with their own lesson plans. I mean, you know, something's really wrong there. And so that was one of my biggest things, was just sort of an increase in respect and appreciation and as well, you hear all the time people say, uh, you know, well, our teaching force isn't innovative. Or uh, one that really troubles me is, well, our public schools can't innovate. And you know, you you realize you you put public schools in No Child Left Behind straitjackets for twenty decade, you know, twenty years. You tell them what they can't do day in and day out, and then you criticize them for not being innovative. I mean, that is not fair. Despite it all, I met a lot of teachers doing incredible things in public schools that I write about that just blew me away when they were able to think differently about how they wanted to engage and inspire their kids.
0: I want to ask you a a list of terms, basically, that are sort of these, I don't know, popular, faddish policy terms in education today that we, we hear a lot in the media and a lot of politicians and, and and big education reformers, quote unquote reformers, um, talk about. And I want to hear your perspective of of these terms, but from the perspective of all the people you've met. And so, so the first one is twenty first century skills. We hear this a lot these days. What what is your opinion on twenty first century skills?
1: When people list it to me, I don't hear a lot that's different from <laughs> what happened back in the days of Plato. Um, and, and so I think in some ways thinking that you have to be a creative problem solver, a communicator, or whatever, and putting that in the context of the twentieth century, 21st century is a bit of a misnomer. What about college-ready? You know, this one to me is, and I pointed this in my book, as one of the biggest factors impeding innovation in our K-12 schools and disengaging so many students. And, and honestly, lots of the college-ready content is not of intrinsic interest to kids, is not terribly relevant to adults and is largely baked into a system because it's easy to test. And so I feel like we need to step back and say we have gone dramatically overboard in pushing college ready onto the agendas of our particular middle school and high school kids. STEM, STEM education. Another trendy thing, you'll read all the time, every kid, you know, you are not going to do well in the 21st century without a STEM background, which is, I think, pure baloney. Um, I actually think liberal arts is really important, you know, because they, they do teach these fundamental things that are important. You know, that just as Plato and Socrates took on very challenging issues, kids are immersed in some of these complex ideas you find in literature or history or philosophy or any, of, any one of a long set of, of disciplines can be great vehicles for developing skills that are really important. STEM, first of all, and, and this is in my book as well, is I talk about the fact that, you know, for instance, MIT students on graduation day, somebody had the great idea, which I think it actually is a really great idea, to videotape these students on graduation day, taking on this incredibly difficult challenge, which is They give the students a light bulb, a wire, and a battery and say, can you light up the light bulb? And kid after kid after kid, you know, cap and gown, you know, degree from the most prestigious engineering institute in the world, five on AP Calculus BC, five on AP Physics, 800 on the SATs, into MIT, blah, blah, blah. I mean, like these are the best of the best. They can't light up a light bulb, you know, with a a wire and a battery. They can't do it. And, you know, right up the river, I talk about Eric Mazur at Harvard and what he learned in his physics courses at Harvard. And so I'm actually deeply skeptical that when we say kids are really getting great at STEM, that in a lot of cases, I don't know that it really goes much beyond memorizing formulas, memorizing definitions, and being facile with being able to spin them back on an exam in slightly varied forms. And so... So, you know, like, I feel like if a kid's passion is STEM, it can be a great path forward. But I think we need to start blending the academic with a lot more of the applied, you know, that kids that are interested in physics need to be shadowing a master electrician and wiring things up and actually making circuits work instead of just memorizing Coulomb's law and Kirchhoff's law. Because I think we're fooling ourselves when we think we're producing great scientists and engineers in our colleges. The employers often tell me they get here, they don't really understand much of anything. we got to teach it to them as so they've never taken these courses.
0: It, it reminds me of that one part in your book where you talk about this presidential summit that you attended um, when Obama was president. And there was all sorts of discussion all the way up to the Secretary of Education um, about calculus. Yep. As you know, Calculus is the thing we need to uh, put back into the curriculum and get more kids taking calculus. And, you know... So why why is that sort of this narrative that reaches
1: all the way up to the, the highest levels of policymakers? Well, I put it back on the policymakers, the people that say things like that and don't know what they're talking about. And, and they really don't. I mean, you know, if you can Google my background, I mean, I have published papers written back before computational resources were really much of anything when I had to do closed form integrals by hand. You know, so I'm not without a fair amount of perspective on when calculus actually was useful and how it's of a lot less use today. I mean, you know, and kids will get done with AP calculus and you ask them, when would you ever use this? Their answer is, I have no idea. Uh, You know, but they might be able to, if they're particularly good at it, do a hyperbolic cosine transformation. But Photomath or Wolfram Alpha does that instantly on your smartphone. So we have these kids spend nine months replicating what a smartphone can readily do without ever making a mistake and they never quite get to how to apply it and actually calculus is something that has very limited applicability you know but if you're if you're one of these bureaucrats it just sounds good you know oh all kids you know isn't it a tragedy that half the kids in america are in high schools that don't offer calculus and and college admissions officers oh we really look for kids that have taken on the rigor of calculus you know, it's just mind numbing because most of the kids who take calculus are not taking statistics. You can get great jobs with statistics. It's important um, for career. It's important for citizenship. It comes into a lot of your personal decisions that are consequential. And, And yet we're telling kids, take something that almost no adult in America uses and don't take something that's indispensable across the three most important things in your life, work, citizenship and personal decisions. You know, it's like, and we, we just owe our kids better than that. We, we owe our kids a more informed perspective on the things we advocate as being important.
0: Okay, so going back to this list of, of buzzwords and ideas and policies, what about charter schools? What did you find about charter schools as you were crossing America?
1: Well, I think that charter schools, public schools, private schools, take the category, I don't care which one it is, you can find some great examples of schools, some okay examples, and some bad examples. And I actually don't think those percentages across the type of of school it is are all that different. Yet, you know, you read in the newspapers, you look at where a lot of philanthropists direct their money, and it's so charter schools are dramatically superior to public schools. Despite the data that says there's really not an appreciable difference in performance, and those are performances measured by standardized tests. And there's a lot of evidence that charter schools are doing you know, two things. One is they're trying to somehow dodge the kids that aren't gonna test as well. I think you see some of that. And also they are relentless about test prep. And so I think there's nuance to these things, but we often just try to simplify it. And so there are charter schools out there. My film, Most Likely to Succeed, is about High Tech High in San Diego, a really spectacular school It's a charter school. It was started back in the days when there were a small number of charter schools formed to really prove out bold and different types of innovations. And I think most people would say there's a role for that. That's an important thing to have in our education system. Today though, most charter schools are co-opted by people who are just gonna try to grind out better test scores from their students and hold that up as a measure of success. And I think it's such a shallow view of things that, that, you know, we just, again, we need to think harder when millions of kids' lives are on the lines with the policies and decisions and the massive amounts of funding we direct to schools, you know, are, are tied to things that just don't reflect careful thought.
0: So on your trip, you, I mean, when I read your book, it is very, it's much more optimistic than I actually um, imagined it would be before I started reading. Um and I, I want to get into some of that optimism about, you know, there are many schools and systems in America that are basically doing everything different than what you're just talking about before. You know, I mean, they're not trapped in this old way of thinking, and there are many educators trying their hardest to to innovate within the constraints of the system that that exists. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the inspirational features of some of these schooling systems, and, and you know, what, what do these really innovative schools look like that you, you visited and, and, and
1: met the teachers and students who, who attended? Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting because one of the, the challenges I faced in writing the book, and I hope I met it, is that the specifics of the things that blew me away, you know, when you looked at exactly what these kids were doing, there was no rhyme or reason. They were really quite different. Um, but there were general principles that under, undergirded them that really made the difference between you know a kind of a same old same old classroom where kids you know just kind of go through the motions and and the occasional question is will this be on the test versus these classrooms these schools these even out of school settings where kids are just racing ahead you know the learning is deep and retained and joyful and you just sort of say man they have got this and which is why I found the whole trip so inspiring, and why I think, um, and, and remain deeply hopeful that that we're going to make enormous progress in, a, in, you know, in a relatively short period of time. Because we don't need to invent what works. I mean, it's being done. You can find something really great in in any school in the country. Certainly, any community has its great proof points, and so we don't need to travel to Finland to see better education. You know, we don't need to to travel to Shanghai you know or you know I mean it's like it's being done in the US it's being done in lots and lots of places and I think one of the things we need to do a better job of is celebrating those successes which is a goal of my book and encouraging other people not to copy it but to in their own way embrace things that help their kids you know have better learning outcomes and be better prepared for a world that's going to be full of opportunity for the people that are creative and bold and and, think outside of the box and curious and a bunch of other things that that often get left behind in the process of school. But that world for somebody that's just conditioned to jump through hoops, for somebody that's just good at memorizing content and replicating low level procedures, that kid's gonna be in a world of hurt going forward. And so I think it's that pattern and that's why I intentionally wrote the book, picking things from every state in the country to really reinforce the point that it's not just in, you know, actually I found Palo Alto, I found California to be not that innovative, you know, but you can find these great things in places that many people don't think of as innovative. You know, the North Dakotas of the you know the country, the Kentuckys, you know, these, they're these really great people fighting in every single day to advance learning for their kids. And
0: do you think all of the different um, models and systems that you've, you've seen that were inspiring Are they scalable? I mean, you said don't copy it, right? But how then can it be scaled to even a whole school district or a whole state? You know, maybe not think about the national level.
1: Yeah, and I I write about districts. You know, I've got a, you know, great chapter, a great profile of what's going on in Charlottesville, Virginia, great district level innovation, um, the state level, New Hampshire. So not only can it, I mean, it is being scaled. And but it's being scaled at a meta level instead of at a prescriptive level. And so what the people that are really thinking carefully about this are doing is scaling a set of conditions instead of scaling, you know, a cookie cutter model of a particular classroom or school. And I think that's really the difference between, um, you know, two decades or more of US education policy, which is decided, on behalf of everybody across the country, you need to do X. And so now we're going to make you do it and we will hold, you know, title one funding out to to sort of bribe you to make sure you, you know, march to the right tune on this versus the really informed and thoughtful leaders like, you know, Jenny Berry in New Hampshire who are looking at how do you put in place the conditions that let superintendents and principals and classroom teachers do the things they entered the profession to do? And how do you trust the teachers to lead the way in far more informed assessments? And so to me, that's really incredibly encouraging, you know, where you you look at a model that is not being scaled, as I say, with you will on October 17th study X in class Y, which, I mean, who the heck wants to live in a world like that? Students don't want to, teachers don't want to. I mean, when we micromanage a curriculum and, and say that all kids need to study the exact same thing for the exact same high-stakes test, we really are undercutting any real chance of learning and, and, and proficiency development among kids, as opposed to putting in place a condition so let people run with things, set their goals, really just knock it out of the park in terms of, of accomplishment. So what are
0: some of these conditions, right? Like w- there must be some sort of, I don't know, more abstract conditions that, that might be able to be scaled to the meta level, like you said.
1: Well, I put at the top of the list, there's a high, de- where, where it works, there's a high degree of trust. You know, and if you, you know, it's one of the things that happens. The bigger the bureaucracy, the more the machine moves away from trusting people to implementing policies and procedures to keep something bad from happening. Once you take trust out of the system, once you, you know, look at what we did, our brilliance of holding teachers accountable to standardized tests they didn't believe in, and I think shouldn't have believed in, you know, we've really, you know, cut the legs out from under, you know, what our schools are capable of doing. You know, so that's the first thing I'd say, trust. Second thing is having clarity about where you want to get with kids. And, you know, I talk about, you know, schools, districts, even states that are thinking very carefully about what are, the, what are the competencies, what are the skill sets and mindsets you want your students to be developing, and be clear at that level, and then working back from that to understand what school experiences will lead to that. And for sure, the competencies that are gonna matter going forward are not memorizing content, replicating low-level procedures, and following instructions. Machine intelligence is already far better at that than any person could ever be but it is things like you know, creative problem solving or uh, aspects of citizenship or aspects of character like never giving up. And so the question is then how do you embed those in the school experience, but not fall prey to this cockamamie thing like we're gonna have standardized tests of grit, you know, like, you know, like which sometimes you hear, we're gonna have standardized tests of creativity, which, which honestly kind of falls in the category of, of a profoundly bad idea. But, you know, and then really tying the student work to authentic accountability. Are they producing things they're proud of that meet some level of some standard? You know, if, if a kid is really going to be held accountable to their ability to do great work in language arts, how do you test that? Well, you know, it turns out, you know, and, and this is another thing that I think is so interesting is that that if you don't feel the need to roll all these things up into a particular number, it it turns out there are easy ways to, you know, make sure that kids are held accountable. I mean, I, I often share the story that in 25 years in venture capital, I never once asked somebody what their SAT scores were, what their grade point average was, but I always asked them to send me three or four writing samples of work they were proud of. I learned so much. It didn't take me five hours to read three or four writing samples. And, and I actually think that that approach said a lot about my success as a venture guy, is I could read their best examples in, you know, a few minutes, five, six, seven minutes, I could read them. And if they were interesting, I could pick up the phone and talk to them and say, you know, of the things you sent me, the third one really struck my interest. Tell me more about it. Ask them some questions. If it was really their work, if they really mastered it, they had great answers. And so, so you think about something, like the SAT essay question, right? I think this is so telling, is that for 12 years, the college board gave essay questions on the SAT. It's actually something really useful to do. You know, a kid has no no help from any adult. They can't anticipate the topic. There's a proctor. You really get to see the kid's own writing. If they had just said, for all applications, admissions officers, if you want to see an an authentic example of the kids work without coaches, without parents, without tutors, click on this and you'll see their essay. They didn't do that. No, they said, we got to put a number on it. And so they ran these essays through these, you know, out of work people they'd hire off of Craigslist, who in interviews will say, I didn't even read the words, I just scan it. People have debunked it by taking great writers and having them write sheer nonsense and getting a 750 to an 800 if they just were You know, five paragraphs, four to five sentences per paragraph, invert the sentence structure, introduce some vocabulary words, you know, that are unusual or challenging. Bingo, 750 to 800. And you realize, like, we obsess about rolling it up into a few numbers when we're really letting the the, the easy measurement tail wag the learning dog. And so, like New Hampshire, there are digital portfolios with these students. Teachers lead the way in authentic assessments, but they can be audited. So, if your school board and your school is saying most of our kids are doing anywhere from well to outstanding in these areas, you can say, "I want to look at ten at random portfolios. See for yourself." Like teachers cross-check each other. To me, that's far better in terms of getting kids to work on authentic, you know, projects and essays, and you know, that value creativity that really do align with developing skills that matter with a thoughtful assessment system or assessment framework, as opposed to boom, high stakes tests they're generally multiple choice or formulaic essays. Somebody somehow turns them into a number. And then when they go up 0.7%, everybody says great. And when they go down 0.3%, everybody says the bottom's falling out. I mean, it, it really makes no sense.
0: America is sort of known, maybe in a more negative way, um, for having very different funding levels between schools um, based on these property taxes, uh, and then also deeply segregated schools, even after um, Brown versus the Board of Education. How do you think America is going to be, or do you think America is going to be able to overcome some of these race and class divisions that we find in schooling?
1: Yeah, it's a huge issue. And and I talk about being you know, two different schools, 10 miles apart in Mississippi. And, you know, it's just night and day. One is in a building that anybody would, would probably say should be condemned. And the other one had, you know, just football fields, fields, plural, you know, practice fields, the main stadium. I mean, it's just the most beautiful place in the world you can imagine. And you find that all over America. I'm not picking on Mississippi, is that it's, it's almost anywhere you go, you can, in 10, 15 miles, you can find two schools, particularly if you're in a urban, suburban area. You can find two schools in close proximity with dramatically different amounts of budget, you know, funding. And it's really this, you know, um, Rodriguez versus the San Antonio decision, more than Brown versus the board that drove all that because local property taxes tell the story. And that's a very difficult gap to get people to face up to because the ones with the clout, the ones with the power, you know, are the ones that, you know, have their kids going to the, the better resource schools. And so it's a huge issue. But then, then we take something that's an enormous challenge and we make it that much worse. Because if you look at the data on how much time kids in the under-resourced schools spend doing worksheets, I mean, that's their day. They're doing worksheets round the clock. They're giving material that they have no interest in, material that we can't really explain how it will ever matter to them in life you know, we block them from getting a high school degree because they can't pass Algebra two. I mean, you know, like, you know, I got a PhD in math modeling from Stanford, and, and I'm not sure in my career I ever used anything from Algebra two. I mean, you know, like, it's just really astounding the things we pile up that block kids from getting a high school degree because nobody ever steps back and thinks about it. And so, so what I found, which gave me encouragement, actually quite a bit of encouragement, is when the heart and soul of school was far more aligned with challenges that were messy and ambiguous and connected with the real world where it wasn't clear what you needed to do to get an a where you knew you were going to fail multiple times and had to just just keep coming at it where you know where it required real out of the box you know out of the box thinking that you know again and again people would tell me oh my gosh you know the the, these underperforming kids, the at-risk kids, the kids that we've sort of viewed as being not on the right side of the bell curve, they actually blow us away when they're doing something they care about. And oftentimes the really rich, you know, micromanaged kids fall apart when they're given that kind of ambiguity. I mean, they've paralyzed, they're paralyzed when they think they might fail. And so it, it suggests this view that we could better prepare all kids by connecting more of their school experience with taking on, you know, creating and carrying out initiatives that in one way, shape, or form make their world better, that, that do have lots of ambiguity and lots of messiness and lots of challenge with them. That's actually better preparation for them later in life and starts to make real progress in reversing that achievement gap. So when I was
0: finished reading your book, I kind—I of, was left feeling, to be honest, that that a lot of what you were saying is about education is really for getting children prepared to to enter a workforce that is going to look radically different in the future than it does now. Um, and I just wanted to ask, on your journey, did you experience or witness, um, in a sense, civics or citizenship or the ability to learn how to be in the world? Right, like so. How does citizenship education fit within public schooling? I mean, is education only about
1: jobs or is there more? Yeah, and, you know, I do write a lot about school experiences where kids are connected to the world and in different ways making their world better. And in some of those ways, it's directly aligned with a career path. And, And that's important to me. I mean, I feel like we have given a kid an enormous gift if they come out of high school with the skill set to directly get a job that pays well above the minimum wage. And and by the way, I think that's doable for most kids in school in America today in their K through 12 years. And, and you know, so as opposed to spending the entirety of K through 12 on college ready, which means that the kid leaving high school really has to choose between a crap, a, a lousy minimum wage job or college, they pick college, You know, the math on that is pretty dreadful with, you know, only half finishing in six years or less. And then of those that finish, only half of those get any kind of a job we normally associate with a college degree. So it's sort of like you start down the four-year path, four-year degree path, and it's one chance in four in a reasonable time frame, at least the kind of job everybody thinks it guarantees. And of those kids, of no matter who they are, you know, 70% are taking on substantial amounts of student loan debt. And trying to pay off student loan debt if you don't have a very good job is is a nightmare. And so, you know, I look at that and so I feel like in a ruthless economy and and people need to try I mean if they do, google me, you know, like I know a lot about innovation, uh, people need to really recognize the fact that machine intelligence is just advancing at a blistering pace. And you know, I tell this story about Uh, The team that went and got funding at Google for the driverless car, which is now, I want to say, maybe eight years ago. And so they put their careers on hold. They made this big bet on driverless cars. You would think that they would be, by and large, really optimistic about being able to pull it off. And the most optimistic person in the founding group said it would take at least 20 years before we'd have driverless cars. Well, you know, three years ago, driverless cars were three times safer than human-driven cars. And so if it's being talked about today, it will be real in 10 years. I mean, it just will be real. So that's why I push so hard for making sure kids have an ability to plug into the economy and, and make their way forward. I don't think, by the way, it's either or. I don't think it's just and, and actually really celebrate and focus on schools that blend the academics with the career, that learn about electricity by... Shadowing a master electrician instead of studying Coulomb's Law, that capture documentaries, you know, that write, you know, produce documentaries to capture aspects of their local history. I think there's a way to blend experiences that really give kids a career lift with experiences that get them thinking about intellectual ideas. And that's one of the great roles these teachers play is to say, oh, you're interested in this. What about this? And sort of move that initial interest to something broader and to to really get at the core thing of citizenship. You know, I mean, what's it mean to be a citizen? I, I mean, is it, you know, AP U.S. history, right? AP, what everybody says is the, the, the gold standard for history classes in a high school in America is AP U.S. history. You know, it's like less than a class period on the constitution. I mean, the number of adults that can explain to you anything about the constitution is, I, you know, like you're lucky if it's one, one in 50. And, and so we give lip service to preparing kids for citizenship, but I don't think it's happening. And yet, if kids suddenly start proactively identifying opportunities, challenge problems in their community and learn that they can take their own talents and their ability to learn and their ability to just keep going at it with support from their community and they can make a positive difference in their world, that to me is the most important citizenship lesson we can deliver to our kids.
0: Well, Ted Dintersmith, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and best of luck promoting the book.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And and I really love what you're doing. So I hope we get a chance to meet in Tokyo and, and um, I'm just cheering you on from afar.
0: Thank you so much. Ted Dintersmith is a partner emeritus with Charles River Ventures. His book, What School Could Be, will be published in April by Princeton University Press. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is FreshEd's social media coordinator, and original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.